0: This podcast is at
1: and I'm Chuck Norris, and I approve this game. Between the
2: time when gamers played with miniatures and chainmail, and
0: the rise of the Wizards of the coast, there was an age of advanced role-playing on to the Sky gas destined to bear the jeweled crown of TSR upon a troubled brow, it was given to teach us all how to roll for initiative. Ladies and gentlemen,
3: uh, let's get ready to rumble!
2: This is the Roll for Initiative podcast. I am DM Vince sitting alongside DM Nick.
4: Hello, everyone.
2: DM Matt. Hello, everyone. DM Chad. Yo. And this is volume number three, issue 131, where we're going to laugh and laugh some more. Yes, we're back, and we're going to be doing a second part of the Oriental Adventures this week, following up on the first podcast we have, issue 130, uh, which everyone seemed to really enjoy, mm-hmm. the in-depth look that we had back at the martial arts, and thanks to, uh, Jay, I mean, Chad, uh, we were able to sit back <laughs> you and call me Jay. <laughs> yeah we'll share that little joke with everybody what was that uh, that quote from the forums chad it's, wow it's like having jason back with a different name <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe
5: that's what you have i just went by a different name no that's right
2: <laughs> so uh now that we have J- I mean chad sitting in with us we're going to talk a little bit more about the uh box set for uh oriental adventures but first before that we're going to go into some sage advice
0: sage advice
2: so in sage advice this week we do have a voicemail and if you want to leave a voicemail that is 570-865-4210 the hotline
4: hotline ninjas are standing by
2: whoa ninjas yeah ninjas do not exist or do they (laughs) all right here's his first voicemail
1: hey guys this is dm kojo just got done listening to issue 130 really enjoyed it as usual um, early on, you had a discussion about magic users. Uh, I wanted to give some thoughts on that. It's been 20 years since I've played a magic user, but, but when I played, and this, granted, was in classic D&D, basic D&D, um, if I had a magic user ran out of spells, I did quite a bit of other stuff. You know, I would use a sling to, uh, make called shots on enemies who were engaged, uh, against my comrades in melee. Uh, granted, it was hard to hit with a called shot. I figured, you know, that was one way I could do my best is to try to hit somebody in the head. That way uh, the warrior can then take them out. out. Uh, I also used caltrops. I figured they weren't just for thieves, but I'd have them try to throw caltrops, like, behind the feet of people who were in melee. And I also would use flasks of oil, like Molotov cocktails, and lob them in over the party to try to get, like, back rank of a they- monsters that were tank, so there's a lot of things you can do there um i also use the intelligence bonus like the cleric's wisdom uh just like nick and chad described it uh, you know it gives them one or two at most usually extra first level spells based on higher intelligence makes them a little bit more survivable you know and then they have two or three spells at first level they're just the one um but this also got me thinking about how people handle spell books for magic users, uh, especially initially when you create the character. Uh, you know, intelligence bonus aside, if you don't use that or if their intelligence is too low, and they only have one first-level spell they can memorize per day, but they've got a spell book that presumably contains more spells than just the one that they can memorize every time. Because when you're learning from your master, I assume you're learning a lot of different Spells that you can use along the way. The way that I've handled this is I always give my first level magic users read magic and detect magic because I think those are essential to uh, performing some of their spellcraft crap type duties and learning. Then I roll 2d6 and arrive, the players roll 2d6, and that's how many first level spells they have in the spellbook. But they don't get to just pick them. I have a list. I always create an NPC magic user who is their master. I create that ahead of time. I have several ready-to-go that I've created you know, in the past, just ready to pull out at a moment's notice if somebody wants to make a magic user. I say, okay, this guy is your master, and here is his spell book, and here's what you can learn from him from your first level spell. And I have them pick half of their 2d6 roll of spells from the master spell book which I've already hand selected or sometimes randomly determined. The other thing is I've then compiled a list of first level spells that uh come from different sources, Player's Handbook, Under Tricana, Oriental Adventures, Dragon Magazine that I have put into um, one complete table with you know numbers so you can roll a die against it. And then I have them randomly roll uh, the rest the other half of their two D six worth of spells to determine spells they learned along the way in their apprenticeship. Maybe they found a scroll here or there. Maybe they got it from a library research, whatever. Uh, So not limited to just the spells that are in their master spell book that I set up in advance. So that way they get to pick some from a list, and they also get some at random, which sometimes gives them spells that they might not want but end up benefiting them down the road. Things like comprehend languages and some of these spells that people don't don't want to take because they're not as offensive or defensive minded. They're more utilitarian. People don't want them, but sometimes you got to have them. So I find that it works better if you basically have them roll randomly. So just my thoughts on magic users and spellbooks. Love to hear how you guys deal with spellbooks. So thanks. for free work.
2: Oh, thank you, dm Kojo. One flaw on that thing is unless you have a slings as your proficiency weapon for a magic user you're at negative eight for that call headshot, I think
4: nah, yeah, yeah, something like that
2: I don't think you yeah. wanna you're having a tough time hitting somebody as it yeah. is magic user
4: and use and hitting a, you know using a missile weapon while everybody else is in melee. Not a good idea.
2: Oh, that's right. That's another negative, too, because people are melee. You might hit them, so.
4: Yeah, he, Although, he was, you know. He, he does it, oh, fuck. Oh, sorry about that, Bill.
2: Ooh. Wait, Chad, you had something interesting to interject?
5: Well, I was, I was going to say, you know, I, I, one thing he could, as a magic user at first level, uh, that you could really be effective with a sling doing is taking out other spellcasters as they are trying to cast. A oh. magic user would be the one who could quickly identify a, uh, another, you know, an enemy spellcaster. And they don't have to even make a, they don't have to make a cold shot. They don't even have to do that much. One point of damage is fine. They just have to do, they just have to effectively hit the caster, break yeah. his concentration.
2: And also those cocktails, that's got to be kind of dangerous, especially with people in melee. What if you kind of <laughs> slip and, and the wrong, you hit the wrong, you, it lands the wrong way. You might hit your comrades.
5: Right, right, and that's the good thing about taking out the other spellcaster too, is that <laughs> more than likely the other spellcaster is not going to be in melee. Yeah,
6: yeah. Well, or or <laughs> with those cocktails, what if you slip? True, the, and they break. You right. roll one, yeah, yeah. Then next thing you know, you need to stop, drop, and roll.
2: Yeah, or an okay. evil DM like me might say, "Oh, you threw it, but it only went like half a foot, and it exploded in front of you and your comrades." Right.
4: I like this. I liked his uh, idea for, you know, for when you're beginning spellcaster, what spells you have and randomly roll. They had something like that in Hackmaster 4th edition. You rolled for an offensive spell, a defensive spell, and some, like, miscellaneous spell. So that's a pretty cool idea. I like that. That, It
2: does help keep alive the spells that nobody really wants to take.
4: Yeah, that's true.
2: Because, how do those spell if everyone's going to take magic missile, whatever, this, that, fireball, this, that, what about those other spells that nobody cares about? How do they survive on throughout time?
3: Mm
2: hmm. No oh, yeah. Exactly. Down, how are they going to survive? There you go. There's your reason if you wanted a reason.
5: I'm always surprised too by people, you know, like, I guess I play Magic heroes quite a bit when I do play anymore. And uh, I, I, I found the value of the less <laughs> uh popular spells because, you know, let's face it, when you come to a uh uh when you come to a giant cliff face and or, you know, a, a fireball isn't going to help you that much. Nope. <laughs> but a feather fall will trick. <laughs> yeah. rope, rope trick. Yeah. Rope trick is oh, a rope
4: such a great spell.
5: Yeah. an yeah. awesome spell. Uh yeah. The I mean rope trip will that'll eliminate your whole need to have parties staying up during the night on watch practically. <laughs>
4: yeah. I mean uh, that's the spell that is let's really cut tailored place. yeah, it's tailored for any spellcaster, either cleric or magic user. If you can't get if you're too deep into the dungeon and you can't get the to town soon enough, that's use mm-hmm. rope trick. That's the place yeah, you know, you go in that extra dimensional space. You're there for a few hours, you rest up, you get a few spells back, bada boom, bada bing, you're good to go.
2: How about this? Why don't we just cut the magic users' talk now, and we'll do follow-up next week on magic users. Okay.
4: Sounds good to me. Sounds
5: Uh, super. uh, Oh, but you you know what? Let me throw one thing in here. Uh, I would say this.
2: No, no, sorry. Give
5: one third one, because he said he gave them read magic, detect magic, and write. Because if you have write, here's the the thing a lot of people forget. Uh, If you make copies of your spells... You can now have a magic user at first level who can who can do a lot more than throw one spell per day because he can right. start reading off his book.
2: Mm, true. Well, if you read it off your book, it disappears.
5: Yes, that's why you need write and you need to make
2: copies. Uh, uh, until what, eighth level?
5: Well, I mean, here's the thing at first level, it's a write as a first level spell. You can write a first level spell and make copies of it. And if you do that's that,
2: kind of, I don't know. It's kind of scrolls me. around. It's kind of a debate. We'll save it for the Magic User Show. Yeah. all right. Yeah.
4: The Magic User Show. That sounds great.
2: The Magic User Show. I think. I expect some it, guy
4: it, come it, out with a top hat, with a pack of cards, and everything. Yeah, it's going to be
3: a That'll
2: Magic be, User Throwdown. It'll be Nick. Nick's hey. Gonna. Now, actually, we did discuss that at one point. We debate. Everyone kind of debated the fact if we can do that with a first level spell or not. But we'll talk about that more in depth. Yeah, it sounds
4: like that'd make a really good show. Well we'll revisit magic users again absolutely
2: yes. I think I believe it was back when Will was with us and he had a big problem with the people using that right spell and first level spells but really? I have to go listen now to see what he said
6: mm. Mm. Actually, let's see magic user we talked about back in issue 33 so that's way back we talk about it with Will, though. I remember him being adamant about that spell. Well, that, that's when we did our full magic user show. It might have been either in so, the sage advice or. I mean, that's
5: the whole purpose, practically, of that spell is so that they can learn spells from their master and write it into their own spell book.
2: Mm hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not that. Anyway, show. though. <laughs> All right, so we do have some emails here. We have two of them. Uh, if you right. want to write us, you can do RFI staff at gmail.com. And uh, the first one comes from JP, Reese, and Michaela. Hi, guys. I would like to thank you for your great work on your podcast. I was a huge AD&D player back in high school, and I've recently rediscovered it by playing it with my children. I have twins that are now 10 years old, and they love the game. I started listening to your podcast in the car, and they really love it, too. They've gotten lots of gameplay and character tips from your podcast and always request to listen to you and, your, and you guys whenever we're in the car. Oh, that's hey, cute. That's cool. Yeah. Maybe they, they like us a lot. We play a homebrew game of my making. We use a mix of first edition and some other edition that shall not be named. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <out>. <laughs> Second edition, he calls that the next edition that shall not be named. That's cute. Rules uh, leaning towards more 1E. The kids wanted me to email you about a topic of playing humanoid races. It'd be great to hear your opinions on it, maybe even a topic of the week.
4: We've done a show on that. Have we? Yes, we did a show on humanoids, I believe.
2: I I thought we did, not too long ago.
4: Yeah,
6: we did a show on playing monsters as your class.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah, And
5: and you need to look no further than the creature crucibles.
6: Yeah, and that yeah, that would be back in uh, issue uh, 44. I'm a monster, RAR.
4: Yeah, but I thought we also did another one similar to that not too long ago. I thought it wasn't that far back. Uh, because I, I remember we talked about... Um, yeah,
6: and we did issue 114 as well.
4: Yeah, I think that's where it was because I brought up... Because
6: we were talking Monsters Quest, and then we went into allowing the monsters as a class.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he could, you know, have a listen to that one, issue one hundred and fourteen and forty-four, and I think I also mentioned. Well, I I think still a great resource. even from second edition. Uh, get the complete book of humanoids. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's yeah. easily ported in the first edition, and you got someone who's interested in playing a hobgoblin, go for it.
5: Or you can go to just basic Dungeons and Dragons and get they they came out with several creature crucibles which. Uh, I'm looking at one on Amazon right now. Yeah, we played one time using it. I played a uh, I played a uh, leprechaun. <laughs> <laughs> which was actually fun. Uh it's always
4: after your lucky charms now.
5: They were always after me lucky charms. <laughs> but well, you, you know pack. I've i seen it here on Amazon, you know, and it says it says right out here you will learn to play gnomes, gremlins, pegatars, nagpas, and other fantastic creatures as player characters. What's the uh, point Yeah, pretty cool stuff. And how much? How much? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, 21 used and new, looking from 12.50. So you could get it for just over $12.
4: That's not too bad. Yeah, it's not
5: yeah. too bad. All the way up to $80. That's a little bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Creature Crucibles were very good. I mean, they were very well written, and hmm. they're kind of a rare book. Hmm. Uh, there were several copy. I mean, several editions of it. Uh, okay. One was about forestland creatures, which is where like I believe it had the leprechaun and the and Nixies, it had the, like the nixie, uh, not the, the dryads. nixie, I mean, the, uh, dryads, leprechauns, brownies, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, and then there was this one, which has like goblins, hop goblins, that sort of thing. Uh, but you have to remember now, you'll have to alter it if you're going to use it with first edition Advanced Dungeons mm-hmm. and Dragons because this is a, for basic D&D. Right. But, uh, it was very, very neat bug.
2: back to the email <laughs> <laughs> We use rules from the complete book of humanoids, okay, so that's from second edition, right? yeah, okay, yeah, oh, okay, okay. Uh, they like a variety of uniqueness and the humanoid races and do quite a good job of role playing them. Good. Our Carapane setting presently is in an isolated island, so it works out well with this little civilization though that is something we'll obviously deal with down the road. My son in particular loves playing his I've never been able to pronounce this A A R A K O C R
5: Oh the Arakra. Aracra or Never guy.
2: been know what was a
5: <laughs> They're like a bird
2: humanoid, I believe. Yeah. And wanted to know if you guys ever had one of those in your campaigns. I've never had it. No. I've never been able to pronounce mm. it pretty much. Uh, I know Not what it I is, recall. I've never
4: had one. I know what they are, but I never had one in the campaign, though.
2: No. Well, keep up the great work, and we'll keep on listening. Cool. All right, cool. Uh, so there's some feedback for that. And the last one comes from Brian from N Magazine, the editor-in-chief. Hey. I have a 40-minute commute, uh, commute twice a day, and I have a lot of time to fill listening to RFI. It has the advantage that nothing interrupts my listening time, but it has the disadvantage that taking notes is suicidal. <laughs>
4: yes don't don't take notes and drive
2: yeah just drive man yeah i place a premium on continued survival i have to rely upon my faulty memory for notes
4: (laughs) get yourself a digital recorder
2: Yeah, we want you to survive, Brian. Right. After listening to issue 85 to present, I started over with issue one. I'm sorry for you. (laughs) Wow. Currently in the middle of 38. Sandbox Adventures, but I got sidetracked listening to the Marvel Superheroes podcast. Yeah, we got sidetracked listening to that ourselves. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Really enjoyed the playtest of the psionics in issue 31. It reminded me of why I dispensed with Psyonix after a brief playtest. <laughs>
4: hey, <laughs> like most people,
2: psionics <laughs> yeah. does not. um hmm. Psionics does not fit into AD&D. It's not. It's a non-level based system, and generally, only one PC in the party has psionics, and that PC is dead or worse after encountering the first tougher psionic monster. Yeah. The entire system is poor, poorly thought out. Duh. And in issue 35, someone commented that someday y'all would be doing issue 135. Uh, there couldn't be any of us. We would never say y'all. So. <laughs> mm. now that you've come up on that magic number, we're not at 135 yet, Brian. No, I'm kidding. How does it feel? Well, yeah, I'd like to talk to. What do you think? Nick, 135 coming up real soon.
4: 135, huh? Yeah. How do I feel about it? I'm yeah. still here. Um. <laughs> i don't know uh, i i'll be on in the, as long as vince wants me to be that's all i I'll gotta stop
2: it <laughs> we extended nick's contract don't worry
4: yes yeah. we, we were in negotiations some- but or someone- a-
2: copper yeah uh,
4: i really love doing the show what can i say yeah.
2: That's <laughs> so one of the, the random jokes on the website is when people were asking questions, what happened to this person? I'm like, oh, their contract ran out, so they didn't resign." <laughs> right. We, <laughs> wish we, them... all,
4: we offered him a one-year, $10 million deal he didn't take.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
4: put in a multi-year contract.
2: What happened to Jason? Oh, his contract expires and his options would leave. <laughs> right. I said it a wrestling thing. I'm right. Saying, yeah. We wish them well in their future
6: endeavors. We've optioned them down to our AAA farm team down in, yes, in Butte, Montana.
2: Yes, we've optioned um, Matt for a Lifetime, so he's never yeah, anywhere. Yeah.
6: Yes, I got the Lifetime no-cut contract, which in wrestling terms means um, it'll probably I'll probably be cut next week. That's that's correct, after you get a bad reaction from the crowd. Yes.
5: But maybe you'll be back in two weeks as part of a new angle.
6: Yes, or, oh, or, or
2: I'll come back under a mask. Oh, God. Emperor. Are we going with
4: this whole wrestling angle again? <laughs> oh, dear God. Oh, well, that's
2: right. Nobody likes wrestling angles, so we can't talk about that. Yeah. <laughs>
4: I just haven't followed it since, like, early 90s. I'm sorry. <laughs> well,
2: well oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, we feel great for 135 coming up real soon. Yeah. It's an accomplishment going almost five years for this show. Has it? When? Well, yeah, almost. When people were saying, they won't last more than 50 issues. To, yeah, considering it was, like, December 2009. Yeah. It was the first show. And I remember people saying, we wouldn't last more than 50 issues. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do. I remember a lot of people and especially on Dragonsfoot, but like, oh, they won't last more than 50 shows. I guarantee you watch a serial. of material. No Man. one's that big of a masochist.:
5: yeah. <laughs> Wow, and there's a lot of material. I mean, even after this many shows, right. there's still so much to talk about too.
2: There well, I is. Remember back in issue 26 when Chad was on the show for the first time yeah
5: actually you know what i don't think i was oh yeah that was the interview with frank mincer wasn't that's it That's right yes that was a i was was on that one yeah
2: yeah you got roped into that one <laughs> <Yeah. Yeah.
5: laughs> i was right after yeah I had, I had just finished uh running a game of top secret that jason was yeah. in and that's how we met actually
2: mm-hmm. jason's like we're doing a podcast you're coming with us and you're yeah, like he
5: said hey we're gonna go talk to frank mincer you want to come i was like
4: yeah
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> and then
3: we sweated. little our- did
4: he realize
5: I remember apologizing to you guys afterwards because I was like, man, I'm sorry I asked a question to Frank. I shouldn't have probably said anything during (laughs) the recording. And you guys were like, no, no, that was good.
2: Yeah, I still remember that. We were sweating like hell in that room. Yeah, I was. And I
5: remember there was a guy that was in there typing on the computer.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yes, so I care remember they,
5: I
4: heard the clickety clackety on
2: the on the recording center of uh, the hotel that Jason decided to pick, which had the anime con going on at the same time. The
4: oh. anime con, yeah, was going
5: on outside the door, and it was this little enclosed <laughs> computer room, and this guy came in and started using the computer, and and uh you know, people, we kept looking over at him as Frank was talking, and he you, know, you could tell he was like, I don't care, I'm using the computer.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> anyway, so uh, Brian's letter goes on to say <laughs> <laughs> As you know, you have too many dice when you can't carry them all in one trip. A pull-along suitcase is a suitable method for getting around that problem. Indeed. And that's how we email. Word. You
4: can never have too many dice. No. But tell us how you really feel about
2: Sionics. Well, it sucks. No. <laughs> I like it.
4: You know what?
2: I hate Sionics. Why not just play a Jedi, all right?
4: Yeah. <laughs> You know, I think it works on the – I think we talked about it before. It depends on what kind of flavor it is. I like say I, it's how you
5: translate it. It's, it's, if you, if you if call you're it into bionics, the, it doesn't fit. But if you call it mysticism or what have you, yeah. it's, you know, rose is a rose, but it's all how something is seen. Well, right? Yeah, but the, Jedi is, the
4: really the system in itself has – that's why they stuck it in the back in the appendix. You
5: can adjust the system though. The bard, yeah. You can play around start, with I mean heaven's – Wouldn't be the first rule. Gary
4: did apologize later on for the psionics (laughs) section. Everybody, you know. Well, no
5: apology required,
4: sir. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, we never. I'm of the opinion now, though, with psionics, you know. And I said before, if you're into a high fantasy setting, very Tolkien esque, it doesn't fit. But if you're in like to what's called low fantasy, more like Robert E. Howard type thing, yeah, I guess I
5: would say are more like Robert E. Howard. Yeah. You know, With, it's it's how you, it's it's really the system's yeah. still broken.
2: I would say just go play Star Wars. <laughs> okay, that's and, all. you I, know.
5: There, Catherine Kurtz, Hi Darini, read it. Very good, Camber of Coldy.
4: It's all psionics. Yeah, but that's a that's a novel. It works in a but novel. they call it magic. Great, works in a novel, but it doesn't work in a game mechanics sense. Uh, like I
5: said, you you can play, you can tweak it. You, I mean, it wouldn't be the first rule that we've had to tweak in D D, but you can tweak it a little bit, and it, I, I think it can work.
4: Tweak it a lot. Tweak it. <laughs> I, I have, I have two words for you: body, weaponry, most broken ability ever for
2: psionics. Come on. And if you're not down with that, then what? <laughs> <laughs>
5: It's always like a tower of iron will. I don't know. I mean, it just maybe part of the love for it for me at least is that I just remember reading that when I first picked up up the game. It was one of those things, you know, in the DMG uh, that, uh, or, or I'm sorry, the player's handbook as well that I just always remember, you know, it's, it's like the DM screen, you know, it always gives you that nice feel when you see the old classic DM screen. Uh, It's just, it's one of those things. I open up the DMG and, you know, I always think of the the page with the big scimitar and everything, but, but I still really do believe that you can, you can, you can fix it if you want to fix it. If otherwise it's probably too much, if it's not something you really care about to begin with, it's probably too much
4: trouble to fix it. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so there. So there. So there. That's, that's all the I got to say about that. Line. That's the bottom line. Still, Maybe
4: we'll look at Psionics again. I don't know.
2: I think we can. <laughs> psionics, come on. <laughs> Didn't we do like four shows on Psionics, Matt? Oh, let's see. Cause I think it's more like two. I know the, we other two to-
4: I, the other two I blotted out of my memory.
2: I know we did a creature feature one on it when Jason like challenged you and I to do psionics and he was the creature or something. Yeah. Oh, I remember
4: that episode. Yeah, gave us those sheets. I think I still have those on my computer. Right.
2: Yeah, because that.
6: Yeah, I was at Jason's apartment in New York for that one because I actually ran through the play test me and a friend of mine prior to us recording that show. Um, as for, play tested it. Yeah.
4: <laughs> when you need a whole separate paper to track your whole all your psionic junk. That's not no.
5: Well, you need a whole supper sheet of paper to track all your magic spells at high level.
2: That's a different, different story.
5: That's different. <laughs> it's
2: not the same man.
4: Yeah. you're just playing mind games with me now. See, there you go with psionics again, mind games. Okay, that's right.
2: <laughs> and that's all the emails we have for this week. <laughs> if you want to write in, that's uh, rfi at gmail.com. dot You want to. Send us a uh, voicemail of under five minutes. <laughs> 570-865-4210, the hotline. Let's head into uh, Table Manners.
6: Typical of all the evil creatures
4: in the world, we like to find one with Table Manners. What are you kidding me? i spent years cultivating the worst Table Manners on the planet. Table Manners.
5: All right, this week in Table Manners, we're going to be talking a little bit about one of my favorite box sets that came out, uh, Carateur, the Eastern Realms. Now, this box set uh, came out in 1988, December of 1988. Thanks, Matt. And, uh, it, you know, I've always liked this box set because it was, a, it, was a, it was a way to actually use the Oriental Adventures book and have an established setting. Uh, behind it that that was actually pretty well written uh came out if you open the box you'd see two different uh books within it uh one volume one i believe was all about uh was all uh, i believe that one was all about the chinese-based uh continent which was Mm Shaolung, and it also had uh their malaysianist-esque area called malatra uh it had Tulung tabat uh, which is obviously a lot like Tibet, the Plain of Horses. So you have your Mongolian area. Uh, and then in the second book, you had a more Japanese-centric area. You had the uh, island nations of Kozakura and Wa. Uh so, again, you know, this was a, a way, a box set. Now you finally had a box set where you could set your your uh, Oriental Adventures and you didn't actually have to homebrew your campaign. Uh, you got two
2: now, maps too, right?
5: Yeah, and it had some yeah. some of the really great maps. Now, this was for Forgotten Realms. I always preferred to play Greyhawk, so I always just kind of shoved it into my Greyhawk world. Uh, but it was originally for the Forgotten Realms, and, and like a lot of those Forgotten Realm box sets that came out, it had some really nice maps. Uh, that can, I think there was like four maps in that box. Yeah, set.
4: they're and they're huge, just like in the original Forgotten Realms box set.
5: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: And I actually had the
5: uh, the uh, pleasure of talking to one of the people who was responsible for writing that, and that was a Deborah Teramis Christian, uh, who. Prefers to go by Teramis, and Teramis is a extremely nice lady. She was the one responsible for writing the Kozakura, uh, the volume two a book that detailed Kozakura and Wa. Uh, she also wrote up uh, Malatra. So I I had this opportunity to talk to her, and she was kind enough to sit back and and we uh, we did a bit of an interview, which I believe we have.
2: Yes, yes, we do, and uh, we can head right over to that now if you'd like.
5: Sure. Do you guys have any thoughts, though, before we do so on, on the Curator box set?
2: I didn't pick up the box set because I wasn't sure about it back then when we had it. I thought it was going to be something I wasn't really interested in because at that time, my love for A- OA was kind of fading. Mm-hmm. Being that, that, the great Joe DM. <gasps> <gasps> <laughs> the, great- the great Joe DM? Yes, the great Joe DM actually went back to great Joe DM land and disappeared at that point. And uh, we hadn't heard from him in quite some time, so we stopped playing OA. And uh, the rest of us really didn't... No one else really liked OA except for me, honestly, and Joe. So people stopped playing it. And even if I wanted to run it, no one wanted to play it. So we kind of just switched back to regular D&D. So we never picked up the box set. Yeah, I did pick it up later on in life, but I never used it. It just sits on my shelf. I'm looking at it. Yeah, yeah.
6: I never played in it either, for whatever reason, just running the Dungeons. And, if I think Dungeons and Dragons, I don't think of going to uh, Eastern Asian culture, so it just kind of seemed like a bit of a disconnect at the time. So I've never got into it either, haven't have like little experience so with it. So that's why I'm really looking forward to the interview. I'm like, teach me because it just from what I've scanned of the box set, it seems so detailed. And, it is incredibly
3: detailed. Yeah,
6: and for those that uh, hate real world like analogous comparisons to their in their fantasy gaming, uh, this isn't the set for you because you can draw comparisons to a lot of real world cultures in this game.
5: Yeah, I think they actually tried to make this uh, as much as possible. I, uh, they kind of tried to root it in in the real areas of the East, uh, mm-hmm. which I like, I think it gives it uh, an added level of, of authenticity, I suppose you could say, uh, meaning, you know, it just makes it feel more real for me. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, that said, these are not, uh, supposed to be, you know, uh, Malatra is not Malaysia, uh, any more than, you know, Ferrandi is France, Right. So you can really, you know, you don't have to treat it as an analog. And uh, and and they did do a lot of work on the books. It's it's, I think it's it's really well done. Uh, And but you're right. You know what? Uh, I didn't as when I was younger, I didn't do a lot of use. Uh, I didn't get a lot of use out of it at the time because we just, you know, we, we while we would use the character classes from the. Uh, oriental adventures book i mean i i I don't know how many times we had a kensai in our in our western themed party but uh we we really never got around to just doing a strictly oriental campaign which is too bad because i've been using this box set now as i've become an adult at conventions and i'm having a blast with it Uh, it's a lot of fun uh to do something simply in the in the far east Uh, But anyway, so have a listen to the interview uh, and, you know, see what you can get out of it. When I was a teenager back in the 80s, I remember first reading Shogun by James Clavel, and that sparked for me a lifelong love affair with the Asian culture. And being a huge fan of Dungeons and Dragons, you can imagine my giddy feeling when in 1985 TSR put out the now classic Oriental Adventures book for first edition. Now I could finally run and play adventures using the Bushi, Samurai, Wujin, and Ninja. Not to mention, I now had a logical place to put the monk class. But there was still no getting, there's still no real setting established in which I could run the games out of that book. Uh, but then in 1988, TSR came out with the character, the Eastern Realms box set. Character is now one of my favorite settings, and I'm really pleased to have with me today one of its principal creators behind that setting, Deborah Teramis Christian, known to her friends, which I like to now think I'm one of, as simply Teramis.
7: Hi, Teramis. Well, hello, Chad. Thanks for having me on your podcast.
5: Well, thanks for being on it. Uh, hey, Teramis. So uh, let's just get right into it. Uh, how did you first get into the gaming
7: industry? Oh, man. You know, it's interesting that you mention um, Oriental Adventures, because when that came out, I also went, oh, my God, this is terrific, and I jumped right on it. Before that existed, I had stumbled across a copy of Bushido by Mark Arsenal and someone else whose name I'm blanking on right now and at the time that was like the gold standard for anything Japanesey and it was a wonderful and still is a wonderful compendium of stuff about that setting but I looked at it and I kind of did you know head palm and went oh my god I could be gaming in an Asian setting. What was I not thinking about before? Because I am a complete Japanophile myself and I'd been doing my medieval adventures and D&D kind of stuff and um, when I saw this the light bulb went on I went oh you know I can go somewhere else with this stuff. <laughs> oh so I didn't read Bushido. I glanced through it enough to go I want to do original work in that kind of place and I put it aside. <clears throat> and frankly, to this day, I have never come back to it except to browse headers and subtitles and go, I have to read this cover to cover, but not yet, because I don't want it to influence my own creative work. So I had come across Bushido, and I set it aside, and during like 1985, 86, uh, about the time OA was coming out, I was designing my own setting of my own uh version of an Asian culture that was becoming key to my fiction writing because I'm also a science fiction and fantasy novelist and um, I had a setting called Kualun, an island nation that was sort of going to become the kernel of an eventual spacefaring empire. So in fact my fantasy worlds and my science fiction worlds are connected in that way. There's cultural continuity throughout. So anyway, I'm doing this development work on Kowloon when um, Oriental Adventures started to really pick up steam. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I picked that up and I went, oh gosh, I've been doing game work since 1979 and as a matter of fact, to this day, I have only played in six games. I have GM'd or DM'd all the rest of these decades because I played a couple of games and I went, yeah, boring. I want to run the world, man. Of course. <laughs> of course. And that's the niche I settled in, and there I went forever after, basically. So um, I'd been in this heavy design mode and creating this stuff, and when Oriental Adventures came out, I went, oh. You know, TSR, I mean, that was the 800-pound gorilla at the time. I said, I'd just so love to work for them. But it wasn't like they were advertising, we're hiring, come here to live in Lake Geneva and be a writer for us. So that was not on in the cards. But I just took a flyer and wrote up an adventure synopsis and sent it off to them in 1986. And it was for a module that was a derivation of something I had created in my Kualun setting. And it was called The Ghost of Shakui Hot Springs about a haunting that uh, the players had to figure out the what's wise. I love a good mystery. It was a good mystery and very. uh, it tapped into a lot of the supernatural stuff that goes on in Japanese culture. So I was quite happy with it. And in fact, TSR wrote me back and said, yes, we'll take your adventure module. And I went, oh, my God. So I did the happy dance for a while about that. But then, that was in 1986, early 1986, but then a few months, couple months later, comes this letter that said we have decided to <clears throat> no longer uh, publish adventure modules in this setting. So they'd already made a corporate decision about how much they were going to support OA uh, beyond the initial source book. And I went, oh, oh, there goes my chance. But oh no, Bruce Heard, who managed the uh, freelance pool for TSR at the time, and he was kind of the manager behind many of the product lines that TSR was putting out. He said, well, we can't do that module because we're not doing those anymore, but would you like to do other stuff for us? Would you like to edit something? Would you like to contribute to something else? And I went, oh yeah, okay. So I did another happy dance, and I started to do freelance work for TSR. So I, I, like, I edited things like the Oh, what is it, Child's Play book, and I, oh, gosh, I can't even remember them all now because it was so long ago, but you can see things at my website, com. Go to the About section and click on Bibliography, and there's a hairy long list there of things I did for TSR. So I started to edit and contribute for their work, and then Along came the day when they decided to do the Carateur box set, and I was one of the people Bruce approached and said, would you like to contribute to this box set? And I went, oh, happy dance time again, because it's a visit to that Asian setting that I'm so very fond of. And so I jumped on it. So that's what got me in the door, not just with my game industry writing, because once you start writing for TSR, at least at that time, what a wonderful credential, right? And so then I could approach other companies and other places and do stuff for them. Although I wrote before that, in 1984, I was writing for Thieves Guild, which you may or may not be familiar with. Oh, yes, I am. Yeah, Thieves Guild. I adore them. To this day, I have old out-of-print works of theirs because they were the first people that did the thing dearest to my heart, which is they took on thieves and nefarious characters and did them justice, right? So they built out uh, based on the D&D setting. They expanded thiefly skills and and stealing and kind of hitting people with a sap in dark alleys and all oh, this nice, fun stuff. Oh, nice, It was really yeah. great. So I, I saw that supplement and I went, oh, these people are great. And I ended up writing a tournament module for them uh, called Troila's Revenge in 1984. And I wished that their company had survived longer. I wanted to do a lot more writing for them,
3: mm-hmm. but
7: that, that wasn't in the card. So anyway, I had that kind of background going on by the time I started to work for TSR as a freelancer. And then it was easy to get engaged with other companies as well. That's another story kind of off track. I won't get into it right now. But anyway, so that brings me to the Caratour stuff. Um, They already had an outline for that um, in terms of how they wanted info presented.
3: Mm -hmm.
7: Right. You need to you need to give us little thumbnail sketches of important locales, and here's a map at least in the in the case of kozakura i I don't recall that that was the case with Malatra, which in their book is simply titled the jungle lands, that was much more amorphous. But for Kozakura, I think they had, because it had been referenced in Oriental Adventures modules, they already had a map about it, and they had some basic things. I think that I was given a basic timeline, if I recall correctly, with some names were already on it, and who did what when, who the emperor was, things like that. So, There was some stuff already established as canon, and I had to incorporate that in the work that I did for Kozakura. But the basic mandate was give us an analog of Shogun Japan, medieval Shogun Japan, and that's kind of what we want for Kozakura. So that's what I did.
5: Very interesting. And, you know, that came out in Volume 2 in the box set, uh, Malatra Mm -hmm. and Kozakura. And I, I was actually just doing a little reading on it here this weekend, and it's interesting because within Malatra, uh, you're really covering quite a, a large geographical area. You have uh, the equivalents, I believe, of Malaysia, Vietnam, Thailand. Uh, it's very interesting.
7: Actually, it's, uh, it, the inspiration for that was Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. Ah, Well, I mean a little bit of island stuff, yes, going on like Malaysia flavored, but basically it was those places. And the core inspiration there for me was um, I had read various oh kind of cultural anthropology bits about the hill tribes of Laos and Cambodia. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, no one deals with this at all in RPG land. It just is not on the radar of Western gamers at all.
5: Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because it, the Hill Tribes make a perfect uh, background if you want to run a barbarian using that setting.
7: Yeah, very true. Very true. And there, and it's a It's a hotbed of unusual customs, although I have to say, when I wrote that, you know, of course, this was way before Internet days, what we had for online resources were, um, maybe you could run a program called Gopher to get files from universities, and beyond Mm -hmm. that, it was like AOL and Genie and Prodigy and CompuServe. (laughs) Oh, yeah,
5: I remember
3: those.
7: Yeah, and I was on CompuServe, basically, and a little bit dabbled in AOL at the time, so... It was difficult. You couldn't easily get to the surfeit of information that we have today. I was living in Reno, Nevada at the time, so I spent a lot of time in the university library. But, of course, libraries, unlike Google, you have to really slog and (laughs) dog around to find related information. And so I would say... You know, based on the resource pool that I had at the time, today I would do much better justice to the setting, to the culture, both in Malatra and Kozakura than I could do in 1987-88 when that project was underway, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. But I was inspired by the research that I did, so I went out of my way to do um, basically cultural anthropology research before I did any writing on either of those settings. Also, as I mentioned, being a Japanophile, I had a lot of my own resource books, Japanese history, Japanese culture, things about samurai. I had that in my own reference library, thankfully. So I had a lot of stuff at hand. Although, again, today, you know, Chad, I wouldn't... Okay, here's an arm wrestling that goes on with the publisher. Publisher says to you, we want something that looks like X, Y, Z. Okay, you do your best to kind of meet that mandate as a freelance writer. But to step back, I mean, at this remove, I have to say, one of the things that bugs me about those settings is that they are so very Earth analog. And it's okay if you want to go play in a fantasy version of earthly medieval Japan right? You do what you can with those ingredients, but because of that constraint of trying to create an analogish sort of fantasy setting, I think it just, it kind of cramps what one can do creatively, <clears throat> and maybe it doesn't even do justice to the setting, because it becomes an, uh, an echo chamber. You know, medieval Japan did X, and so I must do X in my setting here. For instance, the moving of the capital, um,
5: I went to Edo, I believe. Uh, uh, You know, I actually lived in Japan for six years. Oh, did you really? Yeah.
3: uh, It was was awesome.
5: I I was actually a member of a group there that's still going strong of uh, expats called the Japanese International Gamers Guild. And uh, we had a lot of fun role-playing games over there. Uh, And I find it interesting because many of the Japanese role-players love the European setting.
7: Mhm. It's that thing that you don't know that's interesting to explore. Yeah,
5: it's the mystery of it, it's the mythology behind it, you know. It it does make it more interesting I think for people to delve into areas not so much not so close to their own uh cultural history perhaps. Uh, yeah. That is interesting. Uh, now,
7: Excuse me. Let me finish that thought because oh, I I, sorry. I was uh, name stumbling and didn't quite finish what I, what I was thinking about. In, in uh, real life, Kyoto moved to Edo, which became Tokyo, right? Mm-hmm. So there's that fact. In, in uh, the Kozakura setting, we have Fukama moves to Doju, which becomes the capital. But that move of capitals exists only to be an analog to the earth events. Now, as a world builder and a game designer, I have to ask, really, given the setting, given the real, let's say, quote-unquote, real events that happen in Kozakura, would they really have moved their capital? Would would there have been an impetus? Would, would it have mattered? Actually, probably not, and it exists in this book only because of the mandate to be an analog to the Earth setting. So. I think that that can eventually make for a very skewed um, sense of reality in the game world, as it were. And I wouldn't do something that way today. I but, see. But well, have
5: for- you thought about – I know Kinzer and Company does a lot with the Open Gaming License with their Hackmaster series. And then there's Osric out there. Have you ever considered revisiting a character for something like that?
7: Well – no, and the reason is because um a lot of my juice, creative juice around that whole thing came as spin-off from me working on my own qualune setting. Oh, which is um something I don't want to give away bits and pieces of. I mean, I kind of first I don't want to bleed off the creative energy into something that's mm, genericized into a marketable, everybody knows medieval Japan, let's set something there, right? I kind of don't want to take my original setting and and neuter it in that manner. And um, the other thing is that all, the creative work I do in that regard I want to put into my original setting which is already the background for my free novel online called Dragon Sword which I was working on before I approached TSR about Oriental adventures. And some of the elements of Dragon Sword actually became incorporated into some of the work that I did for them in terms of OA-related material. So uh, that was… That's interesting, yeah. Yeah, so there's sort of an incestuous cycle going on there. yeah. Uh, Anybody I can interested? understand
5: that, though. I, I can understand you—you you have an idea. You wanna—you wanna keep it original, and you know you wanna—you wanna run with that. It totally makes sense.
7: Yeah, exactly. And in fact, Kualun then becomes the kind of the seed culture of my spacefaring Sudani empire, which is featured in my science fiction novels. So I have a huge, you know, timeline and cultural continuity thing going on, and I, I kind of don't want to parse that out into other chunks elsewhere.
5: Sure. And you know what, uh, uh before I let you go today, I'm going to want to actually get a little more uh into your your projects that you're currently running with. But before sure. we do that, why don't we uh, you know, one question I wanted to ask was uh when they produced character, it was put into the Forgotten Realms continent. And mm-hmm. I guess I can understand that that was their big uh, that was their big setting at the time. Yeah, it was uh, selling Hawk was no longer something they were so much focusing on. Uh, but can you get into a little bit of the decision making on that?
7: No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as, as a freelancer, you know this is like way over my pay grade. I'm simply told we need X, write X, and I went okay. <laughs> you know how they package it and and sell it <clears throat> and uh, the rationale behind all that. I suppose if I had been interested at the time, I could have chatted with Bruce and said, "Hey, what are y'all doing this and that?" and he might have told me, or he might not, depending how proprietary their marketing decisions were at the time. But we never had that conversation, so I have, I have no clue.
5: <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes sense, and I could certainly understand <laughs> that. Uh, you know, okay. What about uh, what? What was it like? in TSR at that time. I know you were freelancing with them. Uh and, you know, what was the did you get to see much of the environment within the company at that time?
7: Well, only at the r- geographical remove of being somebody they contracted to do work. So, no, I had no firsthand knowledge or experience of the company. Okay. So, I you know, I I was never I've never been to Wisconsin, much (laughs) less their offices or none of that. My contacts with TSR were with Bruce as the person orchestrating my work and uh, a lady whose name I just can't remember right now, but she was like in charge of the copy proofing and editing. So she and I had some nice dialogues. She was very wonderful to work with. But aside from that, my actually, though, I have to say, it became very difficult to work with TSR as a freelancer during that part of the 80s, as you no doubt know or many of your listeners know.
3: Mm-hmm. They were
7: going through a lot of corporate turmoil, and for a period of time, they were very tight on cash flow. And tight means they didn't pay me for five months tight. <laughs> mm. <clears throat> so yeah, that just cut
5: into the creative juices.
7: Yeah, no kidding. I mean I, I couldn't pay my rent and I couldn't pay my electricity, and I couldn't buy groceries. It was that kind of tight, and partly this is my problem because, well, the market being what it was at the time, it was difficult to work for more than one publisher. First off, it was difficult to contact them. Everything was by snail mail, right, Mm -hmm. and if you didn't know someone, it was hard to get an entree, so a, a freelancer, like today, you might have many clients you could write for. Then you were lucky to have one or two, that you could rely on so I didn't have enough eggs in enough baskets so in one way that's my bad in another way that's just how it was at the time but a large part of my income did depend on my work for TSR when they decided not to pay their freelancers at one point I remember I don't remember if I emailed or called up or whatever I think it was email because the response I got was well you know we gotta pay our light bills and when we're done with that we'll pay you <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse me? I mean, I don't know what accounting wonk wrote me that crap, but you know, I have a light bill to pay, also, dude, and I'm a drop in your bucket. Pay me. But I, that is actually why I quit doing freelance RPG writing for a living, because mm-hmm. there was a, a kind of a market shakeout going on at the time. And they were not the only publisher who was late on payments or didn't pay at all. And the end result was I went for months with no income, and one just can't survive that Yeah, way. it does make it hard. <laughs> yeah, and well, and so I had to abandon that and return to the land of geekdom. It's another story from hell I won't get into now. But at any rate, so that was my bad experience with TSR. Also was the um, little issue of <clears throat> when I became um, – a noticed writer, uh, for whatever value of noticed you (laughs) want to fill in, uh, I got offers to work from other places or I should say other folks wanted to retain my freelance writing services and at one point I kind of felt TSR out about this and I said you know so what would you think if I also wrote for so-and-so one of their competitors and I was told well you know if you write for our competition We won't give you any more work. And I went, well, okay, fair enough. I understand that you don't want talent going to the other guys, but in that case, will you offer me an exclusive contract? And the answer was no. Mm. So that means basically a freelancer who does it as a hobby can get by because you can afford to just write for TSR and no one else whenever they decide to pay you. But if you need a real income from this, and this was all I was doing at the time in the late 80s, you have to write for more than one publisher. And if you're going to get blackballed by one, that's a big problem. And so that compelled me actually to write under a pen name for the competition so that I didn't get blackballed by TSR. And it was an economic necessity because I had business on my doorstep that was going to pay as much as TSR did, if not more. And uh, TSR was saying, if you write for them, no more work from us. Well, here comes the pen name. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Do you mind if I ask what the pen name was? It was Terry Randall. And I wrote for Mayfair Games, I wrote the adventure modules that were attached to their reboot of The City State of the Invincible Overlord. Oh, what a great setting, too. Well, yes and no. The original setting was terrific. And, you know, they could have done a great job on the reboot, but... As a game designer, my big critique, and I said it to them at the time, and they said, Oh, you should have been on board with this from the start. I'm going, You think? The issue was they had a hodgepodge going on in that city, in that setting. They had, you know, Greek gods come in in a culture that had no reflection of Greek culture at all. And, you know, they're kind of like different elements that they thought were appealing were sort of copy pasted and slapped onto the setting.
3: Mm-hmm.
7: And so it became a real kind of a, a bastardized stew. There was nothing coherent about it. There was no compelling theme. There was no coherent ethos. It was it was caca. <laughs> yeah, it sounds I, like
5: it kind of lost its focus.
7: It absolutely lost its focus, and that was the city-state itself. The initial box that they came out with focused on the city-state and it was this hodgepodge doo doo. And that's why they started to look around for freelancers who could make some sense and build this out in a way that made sense. And so I'm ever grateful to Troy Denning who invited me to that project. And I don't even recall anymore where he saw my work from, but he did see my work and uh liked it and gave me this opportunity to write a series of adventure modules. And I have to say, in all the professional work that I did, I'm probably proudest, uh, besides the analog version of Medieval Japan, which I'm quite fond of, uh, I'm proudest of the work I did for Mayfair Games with the adventure modules that expanded Uh, Kalandia, the island nation that is the city-state setting. I did a source book that at the time, aside from the Tecumel setting, was the only thing with an original language generated for the setting. I did different regions that had you know coherent deities and cultures that suited the people and it was just a wonderful world-building exercise and I liked their approach. Their books were like half source book, like half background on the setting, and then half adventure that takes place in the setting. So if you buy one of those adventure modules and you can still find them used like on eBay and uh, Noble Knight, places like that, the first part of it gives you a feel for the place, not just geography, but you know, cultural things and religious things and weird that's going on. And then the other part of it, the adventure module, plays on all that background. That's in that other book. So I think that was a terrific way to present these different parts of the place. And there was overarching themes that carried through and stuff. So that was terrific. I loved that. Uh, I've used the pen name Terry Randall since in business writing and <laughs> some other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was uh, it was really great. And then they decided you know, to, to no longer support that line. But there you have it. That's the RPG industry for you.
5: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting uh, when you talk about the analog history for Kozakura. uh, I notice, you know, one of the things about uh, Kozakura is it's kind of a uh, (laughs) juxtaposition. It's kind of a a (laughs) cracked mirror image, I guess you could say, of Wa. Uh, How how did that go down? They decided to make kind of two Japans.
7: You know, that baffles me. And um, all I can think is that. Someone in management must have thought that these different periods of Japan were so, uh, in our historical timeline, were significantly different enough to warrant separate game treatments. Because when I wrote Kozakura, I had zero contact with any other designers. I had no idea WA was even being developed or what it would look like. So all of that was new news to me. When when the set came out, I went, oh, what's this? <laughs> I right? like, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> but uh, So I, I can't excuse it or, or explain it. <laughs> yeah, Wa well, seems
5: to me to be more reminiscent of the Edo period, uh, yeah. when there was actually unification throughout Japan, whereas Kozakura it seems to come across to me as more of an earlier period of Japan's history.
7: Right. Well, yeah, where people are more struggling for dominance and trying to figure out which end is up and stuff. So I, I guess I, – I don't know. I just uh, – I looked at Shogunate Samurai Japan and did my version of it. And frankly, I'm surprised that more of it does not overlap with the WAS setting. Okay. And I can't say – I don't believe that much, if any, of my work was edited at all. I, it's pretty much – what I turned in is exactly what turned up in print, so it isn't like there was someone behind the scenes um, coordinating or orchestrating the overlap between the areas. You know what I mean? Right. There, there wasn't that kind of editorial development going on. I think they just read it and said, "Looks good," and tossed it in the book.
5: <laughs> ah, I see. I see. <laughs> what was it like working with the other guys on uh, *Character*? I didn't. Oh, okay. I didn't know how much communication there was back and forth on that one.
7: Uh, Bruce said – Was there any kind
5: of coordination? I mean, because you were in charge of Kozakura and the Jungle Lands Malatra. Mm -hmm. Uh, Was there any back and forth with the people who were in charge of writing the other areas?
7: No, not at all. Uh, Bruce was the single – Bruce Heard was the single point of control, a little – context about Bruce in case your listeners are not familiar with him. Besides being a product and line manager for many TSR products, he also is the creative talent behind uh, the Mistara setting and wrote a lot of the Adventures of the Princess Arc from Dragon Magazine. Mm-hmm. So he still uh, is working in with those properties kind of in a new uh, new modality. You'll have to check out his his website, which I don't have right now, but I can tell you later. Maybe you can put it in your show notes. And, yeah,
5: you know what? I think I've actually been to his website, and off the top of my head, I'd have to look it up as well. But it is a it is a pretty interesting website. And yeah, you have yeah. a website as well, don't you, Teramis?
7: Indeed, I do. DebraTaramisChristian com is my writerly blog. Uh, if that's too much of a mouthful to remember, Google "Notes from the Lizard Lair." That's the name of the blog <laughs> itself, and. There will pop up a link. People who sign up get a free short story, so sign up to my mailing list, and you can stay tuned into my writerly doings. Very nice.
5: And I've been to it. It's a really nice website.
7: Well, thank you. It's been Neglected lately while I've done some other project work, but that's about to change. Uh, but yeah, no, Bruce was like the single point of control, and if he was happy with your work, then that was that. And uh, there was no communication between us writers. We all had a different uh, aspect of the element of the elephant, right? You know, those blind men fondling the elephant. One thinks it's a wall. Another thinks it's a snake. One thinks it's a tree. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like what we did on, <laughs> on a Tour. And I'm surprised that the whole fits together as well as it does given those different approaches. But Well, you, you know,
5: you must have done a good job because you know what they say. If you don't hear from your boss, that means that you're not <laughs> doing anything wrong.
7: Well, thank you. Yes, I I think that you're probably right. (laughs) It's probably
5: better not to hear from your boss than to hear from your boss.
7: Yeah, that's about about it. I wanted to send stuff in and hear a thank you, uh, and that was it.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure he did like it, though. But you know what? Some other projects uh, you worked on. uh, You also did the Minothrod Guilds, uh, Lords of Darkness.
7: Bad, yeah.
5: Adventure Pack 1, Dragon Dawn.
7: Yes, I did that. I got hooked into the Dragonlance uh, frenzy uh, because uh, whoever they had lined up for that module dropped out. Mm -hmm. And so it was a last minute. Oh, my God, we have a production deadline. Who can write this for
5: us? (laughs) And they said, Tiramis
7: can. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I I have to say I'm not a huge fan of the Dragonlance setting. When I write uh, an adventure setting or module, I can take my marching orders and what I do is it's a mental exercise. I go there in my head and given the givens, i be there. It's like for me, my experience is like watching a movie play in my head. I can see scene unfold after scene. And it doesn't matter if it's a setting of my own creation, like Kualun, I actually feel like I go there, like I'm a spy cam, and I can see and watch and also feel what people feel. That's my writing experience generally. And so if someone gives me a a setting of their own, I do the same thing. I kind of close my eyes and go to that space, and then what I see there is what inspires my writing that follows. So I can do that with Dragonlance, and I guess that means on one level that I tune into the things that I like in that setting, although it's been a long time, and right now I couldn't tell you off the cuff what those things were. (laughs) It's not to say they weren't there. There was something I identified with. There was something that spoke to me (coughs) enough that I could um, do it justice, because if it's a setting, I go, meh. I won't write it. I don't take work just to take work. I do it If there's something about it that appeals to me, Mm -hmm. even if generally speaking the concept I don't like, but specifically whatever case is in point, if I can find that vibe, I'll go there. So anyway, I did that with Dragonlance, but here's what I don't like about the setting, and I want to mention this in part because uh, public writer's honor here, I have been trashed on a – Uh, Grognardly Forum or two for writing Dragonlance. (laughs) Oh, well, you wrote that Dragonlance, so what do you know about games that aren't railroading? (laughs) Screw you, you old grumpy grognard. (laughs) Let me tell you what I think about Dragonlance. (laughs) You know, first off, I think it was really mediocre world building. (laughs) Oh trite, shallow, stereotypical. Now, I know millions of people have fallen in love with Drist and, you know, the drow and everything else. Oh, yes, Uh, Drist Durdan.
5: I always thought he was a bit too reminiscent of Elric.
7: Mm. Perhaps Hmm. so. But he he was sort of like um, a character reduced to archetype and essentials. Right? So to me, these people are too shallow. It's too simple. It's too. Uh, when you have something shallow and simple, it feels railroady. Simply because you know, if A then B, and and that's where you go with the characters. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's what I don't like about the writing of Weiss and Heckman. Now I think they're very talented in certain regards. I really love their work. I love the work that uh, Margaret Weiss did on what was now brain fart Battlestar Galactica. Mm-hmm. I think she did right. That uh, was.
5: She, Think. I'd have to look that one up.
7: You know, if she did a space gamey thing, I'm sure that that's the one I'm thinking of, and I, perhaps I'm confused. At any rate, she has done some other work that I think is really grand, but this was early days for both her and Hickman, and they wrote books about this. Frankly, at the time, um, I had not yet sold my first novel. But when I read the first Dragonlance book, I got halfway through, and this is one of the few books I have really done this to in real life. I threw it across the room, and I said, I can write better than that. It irks me that these people are in print, and I'm not.
5: (laughs) I've done that before.
7: You know, a lot of writers do that, and if you have ever written anything or if you're a creative who has had difficulty getting your work out there, you probably identify with what I went through. And that's not necessarily an indictment of Weiss and Hickman's work. That's a reflection on where I was at in my creative cycle. But it was very frustrating to see something that I wouldn't write, that I didn't really see huge narrative value in, and it had this grand audience simply because of the platform that it found at TSR. And I was, oh, I can't read this. I, I'm going to go get my own book in print. In fact, four years later, I did. Another story for later. But anyway, yeah, so I creatively, I had issues with that entire setting, but... Okay, there's a fan base, and like I say, I did manage to find some elements of it that I liked and that I enjoyed, and I was able to do a decent adventure there, I think, I hope. I guess people who read Dragon Dawn, you know the problem is this, Chad, back then, again, pre-internet days, it was damn hard to figure out if anybody liked your work. You didn't hear from anybody unless you went to cons and showed up in person and some random geek showed up and said, ooh, really liked your blah, blah, blah. You had zero clue,
1: mm-hmm. zero
7: clue, unless your work happened to get reviewed somewhere in a print publication and even those didn't have universal distribution, right? So you could be reviewed somewhere and never know about it mm-hmm. and uh, and so you kind of floundered along hoping that your work was readable and hoping that someone was buying it and Zero feedback. I've had more feedback in the last five years of Internet um, social media density than in the 20 years before,
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
7: which is really weird.
5: <laughs> what about – do you get very much feedback for your character work?
7: Um, occasionally when I cross paths with people who are also uh, – Asie- I don't know how you say it – Ophiles. Asianophiles, Mm -hmm. so people who like that kind of setting that have come across that work or who are specifically fans of Carator, many of them really like what I did and have made that clear, and I go, oh, I'm glad someone liked that. That's so new (laughs) news to me. (laughs) I swear to God. In fact, in all the time that I wrote games, um, there's only one review that I ever saw of my work, and it was because of the... The city-state, of the Invincible Overlord thing, the first module I did for that was called Raiders of Iron Rock, uh, about which I had editorial hissy fits, but nevertheless, when it hit print, if I may quote this, the Review of Fantasy Gaming in England, 1988, said, I know this because it's on my bibliography, I wrote it before I zoned the verbiage, it said, at long last, orcs as they were really meant to be played. No more the pallid foes of derivative fantasy, but orcs in all their fearsomeness and cunning. Oh, very nice. I memorized that, which is the only reason I remembered it enough to put it in my bibliography. That is a wonderful kudo.
5: I, oh, I think so. get orcs
7: right. Yeah, yeah. And it and is always it. nice
5: to see somebody treat, you know, uh, such a, a can- canonical, uh, such a canon ra- race of villains with some originality and really looking at their psychology.
7: Exactly. I My starting point with the orcs was to say, what's their culture about? And therefore, how are they in the real world? Real world being the world they live in. And uh, out of that grew the orcs that I did for that game setting. And someone recognized it. And I. But that is the only review I have ever read of almost all my RPG work from the 1980s through the 90s.
5: Hmm. That's it. Very interesting.
7: Very well, yeah, but kind of frustrating if you're a writer because you know we do like the kudos. Now, well, that? yeah,
5: I I I totally understand that. <laughs> well, let me let me uh, uh, end it with this. Uh, do you have any advice to somebody if they wanted to get into the freelance game writing?
7: Oh, you know, if you had asked me this 15 years ago, I would have said, "Dude, you're so out of luck. No one hires people they don't know." But today, the answer is completely different. I think this is the most wonderful time for freelance writers. There's not only a resurgence of interest in the old stuff, but there's a blossoming kind of of the gamer population generally. And you have the benefit of um, being able to publish your own stuff for virtually, I mean literally, zero dollars of cost. Mm -hmm. In 19... Eighty-two, I was publishing a technical journal that cost me um, $16,000 a year to put into print. Uh, and uh, so for every quarter, $4,000 in today's money. Mm-hmm. 4K, if I want to print what I have to tell you, drop 4K. Bleh. Yeah, I'm so sure. Who can afford that today? You can't. But today it's completely irrelevant. If you publish ePubs, if you do electronic publishing – there's no money. There's no cost. There's no distribution fees. It's on you, of course, to do the time and the effort and the production work. and Pay attention to your grammar. Hire an editor unless your own grammar is perfect. You know, get a good graphic artist and have someone help you put it together so it makes sense. But if you can do those things, <clears throat> take your creative product and, and do your, your brainchild and publish it yourself. And then once you have it out there, put it on Drive RPG or RPG Now, once you have something out there, then you start to point people to it, you start to build a following, you build a community, a discussion around your work and what you're doing, then you become someone that publishers want to talk to. Of course the alternative is if you know if you've written for game publications or you have a blog that's very busy and thoughtful, you can also approach Other publishers and say, hey, you know, I write whatever it is I write. Will you consider a submission from me? Mm -hmm. That's that's a more old-fashioned route. It still works, but it's difficult simply because there's so much going on out there, and so many small uh, publishers, like the indie press today, is mostly you know one-person companies or one to five people. They got their own stuff they're working on, and they really. Don't have a budget to look at your stuff unless it's completely in line with their own concept and their product, which usually isn't the case. So basically go do – my advice would be if I was just starting out today, I would come up with something I think – okay, I don't want to say it's original because everyone thinks their stuff is original. Mm -hmm. I'd do something that reflects a world in a setting I created that I really, really like that I'm passionate about, that I go, oh, this is so cool. I can't wait to share this with others. And I'd write the setting. And I'd write a sample adventure module in that setting. And I would publish that as an EPUB in one of the uh, RPG industry-related venues. <clears throat> and then I would do social media blitz to draw attention to that work. I'd be on G+, sparking conversations. I'd be involved in the G-plus communities which for people not familiar with G+, a lot of those postings are private so they don't hit the social media metrics. There's a lot more activity going on there than you probably realize, but the conversations there are very substantive as opposed to facebook where people write brief things and often stupid things but i would <laughs> always, never you know, I mean, never someone on the internet is wrong oh no <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> but hey here's that. a
5: then a, a follow-up question on that you mentioned getting yourself a uh artist do you have any recommendations? that's always been a uh kind of a if there is a big obstacle today in in publishing i think it's it can still be fairly expensive to get a to get an artist is or or do you know of another, you know, uh, uh, how the best way to go about that is.
7: Well, you know what? It's funny you should should ask that question because uh yeah, it can be very expensive to get an artist and just pay them dollars for their work. So if you don't have that kind of funding, um here's two alternatives. One is you invite an artist Make sure you like their work. But you invite an artist to come in with you as partners on the project. So their work is free, but (laughs) you profit share. Right, right. So so they'll come in on the possibility that they'll see some money, but they become like a co-owner of the work. Mm -hmm. The other alternative, and oddly enough, almost no one is doing this, but I have found all kinds of people are open to this. So I think this is my own original idea. Hey, if you've thought of this before, you who are listening, let me know because we need to noodle about nuances. So here's the new concept. I do the following thing with my publishing company, Storybones Publishing. Mm-hmm. I invite people to contribute work, but I do it on a work for hire basis. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's like the old-fashioned thing is you do X and I get all the rights to it. I own the copyright. I can regurgitate it however I want. It's not yours anymore after you turn it in. Now, normally, one pays the artist or the writer a chunk of money for this, and they go away happy, count their shekels, and the publisher runs off and does whatever with the work. Those are the terms that I wrote for for TSR and Mayfair and all these others, quite standard work for hire. But the wrinkle in this worm, to mash some metaphors, is I pay these people for their work for hire on a royalty basis. So if they are willing to take the gamble, they have locked themselves into a long tail income for the lifetime of the work as compensation for their work for hire. So it's a combination of a royalty agreement you would do with someone who's you know a contributor to an anthology or a partner in your work, but it's for a work for hire. So if you decide that you want to grab the artwork and run with it and use it in other projects and this and that and not have to always ask someone's permission for it. You want to think about a work for hire, but here's the way to do it with no money up front. You say, hey, work for hire in compensation. I'll give you a royalty percentage. A lot of people will go, meh, you're asking me to work for free. Well, no. I'm asking you to work for delayed payment, and you'll get paid every time I get paid. Mhm. Right? Or give you a periodic Mm -hmm. accounting every six months, whatever, just like any royalty agreement goes. But some people are incredibly interested in this and they jump on it and they go, Yeah, yeah. And that's actually how I'm doing my business these days.
5: That's interesting. Well, you know, and that brings me, I'm going to, you know, I said that we were going into the last part, but there is one more thing I wanted to touch on, and that is uh, a nice segue into what are your current projects that you're working on?
7: Okay, well, I know we have gone on for a while, haven't we? So I'll try and uh, – I'll keep this short. My, I do want to mention my recent um, publications, and then I'll tell you about some works in progress. So okay. recently – but this is of particular interest to gamers. Uh, in the spring of this year, we published the Gazetteer Writer's Manual, oh, wow. which I co-authored with Bruce Hurd. This is a really terrific book. You all got to check this out. If you design worlds – If you want to take that information and either create a writer's Bible or a guidebook to your world for your readers, your audience, or your gamers, this book gives you a complete blueprint how-to. The only thing it doesn't really get into is mapping because that's kind of its own weird genre by itself. But this is a complete outline, how-to, step-by-step, really well written, really comprehensive. And if you sit down and work with this book from beginning to end, you will take your world-building game design chaos and turn it into a book you can publish or great handouts for your tabletop game or what have you. So Gazetteer Writer's Manual. It's at Amazon.com, but the best place to get it because we get more of the royalty (laughs) (laughs) is at my publishing site, StoryBones.net.
5: StoryBones.net.
7: Yes, that has uh, the complete enchilada of books and things I publish. Related to this book is World Building Tips, Volume 1. This is a compendium of tips from my uh, worldbuilding.com community. So I have a thing called the World Building Academy. That's world-building.com. And if you sign up for the mailing list, every week you get a free world-building tips, something how-to, something pithy to help you in that process. And this book that's out is a compendium of six months' worth of tips. And I don't repeat tips on the list, so, you know, if you join today, you won't have a clue what came for the last year, but this is a book that will help you catch up on that. So that's a really good deal. And that's also a Storybones in Amazon. And uh, I have some other books and things. If you go to storybones.net and hit the bookstore link, you can browse and see what all is out there. But the other projects I'm working on, I have a couple of books I need, like novels. I need to get out of my hair and down the road, and then I can return to some game-related publishing. So right now I have a book called Splintergrate. that is in the editorial pipeline at Tor Books. Uh, They've published... Uh, all of my traditionally published work and this book is kind of a semi-sequel to my science fiction book mainline uh... they've bumped the publishing date again so i don't know when it's coming out <laughs> <laughs> to be determined anyway Grade is about um a clone and her travails in a uh... futuristic intrigue filled setting and uh... i have um... what the heck else do i have Dragon Sword, I mentioned earlier, that's a free book. You can find it at dragonsword.info. And it was inspired by the Kualun setting that was part of the pre-Genesis to the Kharator setting. It's half of a duology, and I'm working on the second half. I'm going to publish them all together as an omnibus when it's done. But that's on hold, because i got to get these more commercial projects out of the way right now. And my uh, last thing worth mentioning that I'm in the middle of is Queen Victoria's Transmogrifier. It's an alternate Victorian world timeline in which the uh, headmistress of a secret order saves Queen Victoria from an assassination attempt with lots of supernatural stuff going on.
5: Oh, nice. Well, I like the sound of that. I'm going to be checking that one out myself.
7: It's a fun book. Pretty soon, I think um, I may put some excerpts up at my uh, writer blog notes from the lizard lair so people can start to get a feel for what's going on. In fact, this is a book I'm kind of on the fence about. I partly want to publish it, like, you know, if you uh, subscribe – You'll get the installments as they go, so I can do like Charles Dickens did and you know, do yeah. a weekly or, or uh-huh. monthly installment until the whole thing is done, and then when it's edited, you'll get the final book for free. So I might do that, but I don't know how much interest there is in that. Anyway, if you all are interested, drop me a note, teramis at com, and let me know. Would you want to read a book by installment? I don't know. I think
5: that would be really neat, uh, and you're right. That was something that was actually very big uh, during the Victorian age.
7: It was. In the 19th century, all the big names we know today got published that way. That's oh, the yeah.
5: Period. Oh, yeah. What was the one that Dickens wrote? I, I get mind blocks all the time, uh, and I'm actually in English. I got my degree in English. Uh, <laughs> That'll literature. account for
7: it. <laughs> yeah,
5: exactly.
7: Uh, he, he wrote Pickwick one, Papers that, that way and, and then everything else. Um You know, up to, what the heck, Uh, David Copperfield was big that way, and just about any title you can name, they all came out in the weekly uh, serials first.
5: Oh, yeah, and people literally, I mean, not the rich even, but everybody at that time waited for those installments. That was like TV for them. They waited for the next episode to come out.
7: In fact, I've heard that there were crowds lined up at the dock in New York, waiting for the ship to come from England with the newest installment of his next book. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is
5: really neat. Well, I tell you what, uh, I am not going to keep you any longer because I know that you're busy right now. But I wanted to really thank you, Taramis, for, for for talking about not just Caratur, but all the projects that you're working on. Well, thank you
7: i appreciate it and i you know i got to say I, see this is part of the internet thing i'm surprised that people have a clue what i did over all these many years ago and that there's still interest in it i think that's fabulous and i hope that um i can continue to contribute new and fresh and exciting things to uh, gaming adventure land. I need to get some books, like I say, off my plate first before I can really forge ahead with that. May I say one last thing? World Building Academy, if you're interested in game design and world building that supports a a setting and makes it really plausible, check out the World Building Academy. I'm about to launch a program about uh, creating worlds and gazetteers and a, a guideline to to do that creativity work, go to world-building.com slash programs. You'll see announcements for it there when it's up.
5: Well, I think that's great, and I have a feeling a lot of people are going to be hitting that because it, cool. you know world building is one of the, my favorite parts of running a game, in fact, or writing a book.
7: Yeah, it can be all-consuming, but it doesn't have to stay there. People go, oh, I have too much world info. What sense do I make of it? You can actually turn it into a game or a book or whatever. You 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 just need to follow a a model that will get you from A to Z. (laughs) Exactly.
5: Well, thank you very much, Teramis. and I look forward to the next time we talk.
7: Likewise. Uh, Thank you very much for the time. All All
2: right. right. an amazing interview, dude.
5: <laughs> very cool.
4: Very yes. cool. Well, thank you very much. And I uh
2: some, Chad,
4: how'd you get a hold of her? Yeah. I was how kind of curious talk- how you got to that. Well, actually,
5: uh, she is a poster over on Dragon's foot and uh which is the forum website that a lot of old schoolers go to. Uh and I sent her a private message about a year ago. I was actually in the middle of writing Red Crane White Fox for Garycon Four, and I wanted to run some ideas past her uh and she was kind enough to respond and she had me send her a copy of the adventure and you know she looked it over and she came back to me with some really nice critiques uh you know- she, uh and it just kind of went from there i uh she friended me on Facebook and, you know, whenever I'd have ideas for uh, for games or, you know, just uh, something to run, a lot of times I, I still
2: send them by her. Hmm. Interesting. Well, yeah, and to take, to I'm give sorry, it, what's that? I said I'm glad she's there to give some advice and help people out for stuff like that.
5: Oh yeah, yeah. She actually is still putting out books on uh, you know, it, it's as you heard in the interview, one of her things that uh, she's really focused on is world building. Uh so now she did a, a very good job of of making uh the character material uh for Kozakura and Wa and Malatra. Uh, fairly an analog to, you know, to real historic areas uh, here. But uh, that said, you know, she's actually, I think, more interested in the, you know, creating a world of your own, you know, not being analog to anything existing So, you know, it's interesting that she put so much work into uh, Kozakura and Wa Malatra because I know that she's also uh, very much a fan of building one's own world out. Right. So, uh, yeah, she is definitely, you know, I'd highly recommend people checking out some of her other material. Uh, and she has, as a, she was a freelancer for TSR. So she has put, uh, there's, there's a number of works out there that have her name on it and, and they're all really good. I know she did a lot with, uh, top secret, uh, as well. And we got into a long conversation, obviously talking about top secret.
2: No, yeah. <laughs> yeah, be a fly on the wall for that one.
4: Yeah. Well, mm, yeah, you know, no kidding.
5: She has a, she has a, a background that suits her well to writing top secret.
2: <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. Well we yeah. if you have any more interviews like that, I know you interviewed um we have another uh, one. We just recently yeah. just came out with the interview with uh Alex, from uh, Al- Game
5: Alex Hall. Kramer. Yeah, I was actually at uh I was at uh Game Hall just a week ago actually. Uh, and we had a blast, by the way. I went there with the other guys from the Dead Game Society, Michael and Colin, and uh, we had an absolute blast. Speaking of Top Secret, Colin and I ran a game of Top Secret there that, that man, we, <laughs> it was fun. Uh, we actually co ran that one. But then uh, later that night, uh, I got to speak with uh, Game Hole's uh, founder, uh, a gentleman by the name of Alex Kramer, and he was very nice he he took us uh, out to eat that night and uh we sat and talked and he showed us this just amazing game room that he has uh and yeah he if you've ever one of the things i wanted to to interview him about was if you've ever thought about uh making your own convention gaming convention uh he really in the interview that that you'll hear he really lays it out the whole process of what is involved in making your, you know, putting together a quality convention. And it's cool. not, you know, I, I don't know about you guys, but I know that, uh, you know, I've talked with friends before. You know, hey, let's make a convention, and you, you start to think that all you need is a place to hold it. You know, and there's a lot of considerations yeah. in going doing yeah. it. Uh, and he really outlines them. He he lays all these considerations out. And he, you know, he's in, in his day to day work, he's a, he's a, a successful uh, businessman and he, he knows how to put together something like this. And, and he really put his real life skills into building that convention. It, it
2: was a wonderful convention. Cool. Well, we appreciate you, all that you did for us there.
4: Yeah, that was great. Thank yeah. you so much.
2: Not a problem. I think we're going to end the show by heading into our uh, third segment of the Dungeon Master Assistant, which uh, people are seeming to uh, really like re- uh, the last two so far. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mister Round in action. Let's head right into that.
0: Welcome back to another edition of the DM's Assistant. Today, I thought we'd discuss tips on managing large groups of players. When I first started playing D&D, a normal group size for us was just about two players. Of course, the good thing with that was that we could play nearly every day. There were times we got a few more players together, but at max, the party size was probably a very manageable four to six players. The first time I ran a group of players larger than that was a return for college to the old stomping grounds for a weekend game. At that time, my answer to running a large group was, don't split the party anyone who did so met a very calculated and timely demise. After a few deaths, the message was quite clear, we only ever had one weekend game. You see, players don't want to be railroaded, and they certainly don't want to die because the DM can't handle a few players having a mind of their own. Alright, so speed up the clock, now as an adult I run a monthly game. The monthly game, at its high, had 12 regular players for over a two year span. Currently, due to attrition, the group now has a consistent 6 to 8, which is still high. But for over that two year period, I had to manage a very large group. And unlike the weekend game, I allow freedom and the direct result was a campaign that lasted two years. So how do you manage large groups? Well, here are some tips. First, unlike my college days, actually encourage the group to split the party. Splitting the party actually makes it easier for you to DM. It gives you two smaller groups. Try to avoid three or more splits. And you can do that by the following during the gaming session allow choice but create limited choice options for example the party is given the mission to find out what's causing the raids on the town the party decides to question some townsfolk as you dispense the information provide rumors of two no more than three possible locales this way you control the party split now next physically separate the party If some of the party members decide to head towards the abandoned mines and others want to go to speak to the mayor first, I ask for a show of hands who's going to A, who's going to B, and once I know who's going where, I ask one of the two groups to go into the other room where I have conveniently set up a second table and a set of chairs waiting for them. For all intents and purposes, creating two games. Since you're going to have to go from table to table frequently, make sure you don't spend too much time at one table. Give each group just enough pertinent information and end with a puzzle or quandary for them to think about. Then go to the other table. If the split is much smaller, say one or two players, bring the players aside, give them some juicy information and when you're done, ask the players if they're going back to the group. Remind them that they don't have to share the information if they don't want to. Here are a few more game management tips. Whether in one group or two, get assistance from a table during combat. Having a player designated to handle and record initiative orders so you don't have to. This frees you up to handle the narrative and the monsters. Also, if someone's willing, you can even appoint a co-DM. Depending on their level of comfortability, you can either allow the co-DM to run a section of the adventure on their own, or allow them to play key NPCs. This will allow you time to attend to the other group. And lastly, but probably most importantly, you have to know your players. Know what they like, and expect to get out of the game and build your campaign around each and every one, giving each their moment to shine. Tailoring the venture pre- prevents boredom and keeps players invested. This is hard to do in a large group, but if you understand the most common player types and their play preferences, you'll go a long way. Since I'm running out of time, I'll leave player preferences for another session. So keep listening to the Role for Initiative podcast for future episodes of the DM's Assistant. And remember, when you miss your role to detect the secret you know is there, you always have the DM's assistant to peek behind the screen. Good night.
2: Yet another segment. I don't know—is is the background music on those things bad? Because some people, too, I heard, some, I seen, I have seen. Excuse me, two people complain about the background music. Matt, your audio—how uh, did it come out? At times, it. It might be a little difficult to understand them. Just it's all about
6: getting the levels right. So some people like having people talk, especially if it's a solo person with like some background noise, just something subtle underneath. Other people prefer just having the voice. It's kind of preference. Um, I tend to lean. I can go either way. It really depends on the person. Doesn't bother me, but I can see how some people may not like it. So I know that was a big rambling answer for getting nowhere
5: (laughs) yeah yeah you know at the end of the day i'd say it's it's you know the music can be and can be really good it can add to something but if a lot of times when listeners are really trying to hear what the speaker is talking about it can also get a little bit in the way
4: Yeah, it could could be distracting
5: well
2: too effing bad that's what (laughs) wait i'm sure that'll be a one star now on itunes because i said that
4: oh no Yeah, I know.
2: (laughs) Like we haven't gotten those before, right? Yeah, a long
4: time ago, though, we got one, and
2: that was, well. Now you're going to just cause everybody to go write one stars.
4: No. Wait a minute. You (laughs) brought that up. Hey, hey,
2: (laughs) hey, hey. It's it's nice to see that most of our reviews are all positive reviews. Yes. (laughs) Well, I should say 90% of them are positive reviews. We only have that small 10% during the. Dark times. Yep.
5: Yes. Yeah, I'd have to say if most of the reviews were negative, uh, that would mean we we had uh, we had some work to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
4: We've been lucky. We've been very
1: yes, lucky. Yes, we have. Yep.
2: Yep. 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 Well, I hey, guess yep. that's going to end the show this week. Thought <laughs> <laughs> we were doing on that a show. <laughs> <laughs> So we're going to do another uh, show next week on magic users. I've seen quite a bit of. Uh, comment on the forums of people saying you should do a show on magic users. well another show on magic users. so we'll do another show on magic users yeah yeah
5: see what other angle
2: we can go we'll do it with our new jason (laughs) yes
4: yay
5: jason
2: dose yeah you know what
5: that might be a a good episode to also talk about the wish spell
2: yes we did a really large large episode on wishes back on yeah we did Thirty-six, seven, around there. Let's oh. see here. I remember that one too, because and we did a follow-up with Will. I remember that too. Because mm-hmm. let's see here, yes. Wanna, there, Actually It, should, it was in a
6: say, Let's see here. Oh, it was in a uh, special instance. No, that was about. It. I'm not actually seeing anything where I specific we specifically stated. I'm wondering some of these things where we remember talking about it. It was in like sage. Might advice. Might have been like
4: a sage advice. Yeah. I think
6: a lot of it. What mm-hmm. we never did a formal segment. We basically get uh, sage advice uh, voicemails and uh, emails of which, and we spark a good conversation about it. And all of a sudden, we're in our brains. We're thinking we did a segment when really all we did was answer an email.
5: Yeah, yeah. I remember we were talking about doing a segment on it. Uh, in the uh, was that that was in the last show, wasn't it? Yeah. We were talking about how do you end a wish spell? Yes.
6: Yes, without having to write the end. <laughs> the end.
5: <laughs> well, either way, it'll be fun to talk about magic users. and right. Yeah. Just tie a lot of stuff into that.
4: Oh, yeah. There's yeah. a lot of good, a lot of cool angles that we can probably go with. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And okay. send us your suggestions. I would say that, too, over the next week if you can.
5: Right. Well, well, who knows? And send me your money. yes Yes. oh wait no that's not official
6: (laughs) send Electrum that's the only
2: way we can afford Nick's new contract
4: yes Mm. I love Electrum pieces they're fine
2: Nick has been re-signed to have one belt run for about three months okay cool (laughs) but he's gonna lose horribly to some like guy like you know I don't know (laughs) Daniel (laughs) Bryan,
4: Gorilla Monsoon I'll take him he's old
2: hey he's
6: the reanimated Gorilla Monsoon
4: he's a zombie Love
5: yeah, that. If you if you wrestle him today, angle. he would be. That's true. Is his new manager Paul Bearer?
6: <laughs> oh, another oh oh oh, sing. oh another dead another <laughs> dead person.
5: And
4: that's oh, so that's just disrespectful.
6: Yeah, he he died this past year, which
4: is funny that he threw the zombies and wrestling together because the game All Flesh Must Be Eaten. One of their supplements was Zombie Smackdown. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Wrestling and zombies. woohoo! <laughs> yeah.
6: I, I know someone who actually filmed a zombie movie ah. involving zombie luchadors. I found it. Issue number four, research me a wish.
4: <laughs> that
6: would
2: explain oh, wow. why I don't... That
4: was a while ago.
6: Yeah.
2: My notes only go back to issue 29. <laughs> that's did why... I
4: start? Issue 11, I think.
2: Yeah, it was 10? just Jason and I. But I did do yeah. a follow-up, I remember, with Will. It was just Will and myself on the show. Okay. okay. So uh, somewhere in Volume 2, there has to be a Wish show with just Will and myself, because I know he wanted to talk about it because he loves Wishes, so. Mm. So we could do another show on Wishes again, too. Why not? Who's it going to kill? Only Nick.
3: Hey. <laughs> Let's see hey you now. Dead.
2: Major announcement on Facebook. I just saw a flash before my eyes, and I'm very appalled. I don't know if I should tell you about it, but. Oh, yes. Life Day? No. Oh. The 6th party of 2014, back together again, Vanilla Ice and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles.
4: <laughs> oh, God.
2: And on that note, yeah. <laughs> happy Life Day. Today is Life Day, you know.
4: Yes, I know. I'm going to so watch. Go out and get a life. I'm, I'm going to be- watch the Riff tracks version. Thank you very much.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, and happy birthday to
6: Yes, uh, Well, that's happy tomorrow. Birthday, yes, thank you. Thank Close you. enough,
4: birthday boy.
6: Yes, uh, I share a very ominous birthday for all kinds of things happened on it. Between, I shared my birthday with Mickey Mouse, with the original Steamboat Willie uh, cartoon. It first aired on my birthday 50 years prior to me being born. And then on the exact day I was born, yeah, the Jonestown mass suicide. Mm. Yeah, and then the day prior was the hol- Star Wars holiday special. I wonder Jones? if they're related.
5: So you're saying that bad say that. things happen on we – should, we should be expecting bad things. Yeah,
6: bad things, bad times.
4: I did mention before the show with – well, no, never mind. <laughs>
2: <laughs> keep it original. Keep it old school. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night, everyone. Good night. And we are out. Podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions in association with d20radio.com. You can visit us at rfipodcast.com or contact us on our forums at osrgaming.org or even by calling us at 570-865-4210. This podcast is produced for entertainment purposes
0: only. All other uses are prohibited. And remember, if your magic missile spell doesn't automatically
2: hit, you're playing the wrong edition. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Roll for Initiative.